Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's Audio Brigade Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabik Zolohoko and Figle Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Controversial Nigerian social media bill passes second reading in the Senate and South Africa's former President Jacob Zuma returns to court today. In economics news, strike at South African Airways could soon be over and in sports news, South Africa ready for must-win AFCON third and fourth place playoff match against Ghana. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent. And impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Former South African President Jacob Zuma and co-accused French arms company Thales is returning to the High Court in Pietermaritzburg. Zuma and Thales have applied for leave to appeal last month's judgment, which dismissed their application for a permanent stay of prosecution. They submitted that the full bench failed to correctly consider their arguments on the alleged political meddling in charging Zuma. The two also argued that the court was wrong to find Zuma complicit in the delays in the matter. The state is opposing the application. Fusi Makusini reports. Both Zuma and Thales believe the judges erred in their findings when they dismissed their application to have charges against them quashed. On the issue of delays, Zuma's legal team disagrees that Zuma was complicit in delays as judges found. They say the former president merely exercised his constitutional right when he litigated against the state. Zuma also claimed the judges disregarded his claims of political meddling in a decision by the NPA and the then Scorpions to charge him. European Union officials have held talks with the Zimbabwean government in an effort to improve relations which soured under former President Robert Mugabe's rule. The high-level talks could lead to the resumption of financial assistance to Zimbabwe, which is in an economic crisis. In 2002, the EU imposed sanctions due to human rights abuses and controversial land reform. President Emerson Mnangagwa had pledged to repair diplomatic ties. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed not to resign despite being charged with bribery, breach of trust and fraud in a criminal indictment that has plunged his country into further political disarray. Israel's Attorney General announced the decision in a first-of-its-kind indictment of a sitting Israeli Prime Minister. Sharon Bryce Peace reports. The indictments are viewed as a major political blow for the incumbent who is clinging to power after two inconclusive elections earlier this year and a likely third if neither he or the opposition are able to form a government. The indictment posed no immediate threat to Netanyahu's decade-long hold on power and he is under no legal obligation to resign once charged. Reports also suggest that the opening of any trial could be delayed for months by a possible new election and by possible moves from the Prime Minister to secure a parliamentary immunity from prosecution. Politicians from Ethiopia's governing Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front Coalition have approved the idea of forming a new political party, a plan that has been backed by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Abiy says the new Ethiopian Prosperity Party would help break down ethnic divisions and unite the country. He wants it to become the national driving force to replace the three-decade-old ethnically-based coalition. One coalition member, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, has refused to join the new party, fearing its influence will further be eroded. And finally, the World Health Organization has warned that four-fifths of children and teenagers are not getting enough physical exercise. The analysis of 11 to 17-year-olds is the first global study of childhood activity. It has found that children in Bangladesh were the most active, while children in South Korea were the least. The BBC's James Gallagher reports. The World Health Organization recommends children exercise for an hour every day. The data shows most don't. 
The researchers say it's not a case of children being lazy, rather a global failure to encourage physical activity. The report in The Lancet Child and Adolescent Health says a focus on exams mean children spend long periods sat down studying, that unsafe roads mean they do not cycle or walk to school, and that a digital world of entertainment on phones and computers is competing for children's time. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Since 2015, the authorities in Abuja have been harping on the need to exert control on social media in an attempt to curb alleged incidences of hate speech and fake news. Government's concern, as expressed by the country's Minister for Information, Laya Mohammed, is that a social media left to itself could wreak havoc on the society. With a vow by the government to ensure that laws are introduced to restrict misuse of the channels available on social media, ordinary Nigerians have taken to the media to explain why the government should not have sleepless nights over the use of social media, but instead it should allow existing laws in the penal and criminal justice system of the country to deal with the fears it may have. Collins Atohengbe reports from Lagos. There is uneasy calm in the media as Nigerians await the possibility of having additional legislation which could make or mad the system of information dissemination in the country. For some, the decision to regulate social media is long overdue, but for the majority, government is overstretching itself with issues that have been provided for in the existing laws of the land. The Minister for Information, Lai Mohammed, says there is no going back. No responsible government will sit by and allow fake news and hate speech to dominate its media space for the abundance of doubt. While we welcome a robust debate on this issue, the criticisms in certain quarters will not stop us from going ahead to sanitize the social media. Sanitizing social media is a wide area which may need to be further explained as the debate continues. What is known, however, is that government is poised to introduce measures to keep a lead on publications in the social media, and that has led to the introduction of a bill on hate speech in the parliament. Sponsor of the bill, Senator Musa Sani, says his intention is not to gag the media. There should be some kind of ethical conduct. What we are trying to do is to bring, I mean, laws that deals with technology, especially communication, to see that we meet like any other country. So I don't know why, I mean, people have been very apprehensive about this bill. I'm not bringing this bill in order to witch hunt anyone, but in order to put our social media space in the right conduct. The director of International Press Center and former chairman of the Lagos State Chapter of the Nigerian Union of Journalists, Lanre Arugunda, says one would have expected the relevant stakeholders to dialogue on the issue of hate speech. There are multi-stakeholders when you are talking about hate speech. We in the media, we are stakeholders. Women groups are stakeholders. Other groups in the society. So for you to think of any form of regulation, you must have multi-stakeholders dialogue. We must, rather than introduce a law that says those who engage in hate speech should be hanged, not those who are involved in corruption. Hate speech is not good. What we are saying is let's use our mechanisms to address this, especially when there are existing laws. You have the cybercrime in you know, a law. Why are we so preoccupied with thinking that our solution is just for us to continue to you know multiply you know legislations? I don't think it's quite helpful. For Femi Fallon, a constitutional lawyer and right advocate, the move is to tighten the nose on the media such that when government's agenda is finally revealed, the media will not be alive enough to challenge the authorities. Our country has gone to the dogs and the media must help. You have to help. And that is why the war is against the media. Because for the 2023 race, the media must be silenced. You may have a total campaign very soon. Very soon, they are going to destroy all possible opponents. And they have started. So by the time they bring in the total agenda, the media will have been gone. But we are not going to allow it. In the 
Keto, a public affairs analyst, says the proposed law is tyranny of the political class against the people. I'm quite concerned Nigeria's approach is clearly a tyranny of the political class. Who gets to decide what is fake news? Who gets to decide what is hate speech? And we've seen with interactions between politi politicians and people on social media that it is most likely them who want to decide what this is. And that is very dangerous. And if you've got countries that are acting like us, and mostly like Russia and the rest, if you look at what developed countries are doing, countries with stronger democracies, they are targeting the organizations facebook itself twitter itself and asking them to review their policies and that is how to go about this but here we are talking about nigerian citizens charging them what most nigerians were poor country cannot afford and beyond that also talking about jail term beyond that we're also talking about the death penalty in 2019. one important reason many nigerians believe there is more than meets the eye in the move to regulate social media is because of the existence of stringent measures in the legal system to deal with fake news under which hate speech has been taken care of. A rights activist, Senator Shehu Sani, says the introduction of any other measure will kill Nigeria's democracy. Section 24 of the Cyber Crime Act specifically dealt with the issue of fake news and hate speeches. And I believe that law is enough to handle the fears, the concern that has to do with the rot that comes from the social media. And I believe when you have such a bill to regulate those that will uh, perform that oversight function, uh, it is simply about silencing them. An additional law like this uh, will simply affirm that our democracy is simply on the road to sadism. And for this reason, Senator Shehusani says Nigerians should contend with a move which has so far scaled through the second reading in the National Assembly. I think uh, Nigerians need to rise up against any law that will stifle the rights to express their opinion. Our criticisms and our objections to this law founded on history. And I don't think anything will stop us from expressing our opinion. We fought to bring about democracy and we are fighting to defend it. So I believe that uh, the fears are expressed are genuine, that those in power should learn to accept, to endorse, and also to accommodate and tolerate criticisms. We believe that is the oxygen of democracy. The apprehension of the people is that government is trying to introduce a 1984 military decree under General Buhari, then a military head of state, under which journalists were jailed for publishing information about government's planned action which later proved to be correct. Could there be any truth in that feeling? The clock is ticking. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atoengwe for Channel Africa News. Former South Africa's President Jacob Zuma and his co-accused French arms company Thales are going back to the Peter Marisburg High Court on Friday. Zuma and Thales have applied for leave to appeal last month's judgment, which dismissed their application for a permanent stay of prosecution. They submitted that the full bench failed to correctly consider their arguments on the alleged political meddling in charging Zuma. They also argued that the court was wrong to find Zuma complicit in the delays in the matter. The state is opposing the application. Vusima Kosini has more. Old Zuma and Thales believe the judges erred in their findings when they dismissed their application to have charges against them quashed. They argue that the matter should have been heard by a criminal court and not by a civil court as it involved an irregularity. Zuma also argues that the court committed gross errors of fact and law in dismissing the application for a permanent stay of prosecution. They say the court downplayed the constitutional prejudices suffered by Zuma by using a pre-constitutional principle. On the issue of delays, Zuma's legal team disagrees that Zuma was complicit in the delays as the judges found. They say Zuma merely exercised his constitutional rights when he litigated against the state. And they further argue that the NPA was obliged to ensure that Zuma was prosecuted within a reasonable time. Zuma also claimed the judges disregarded his claim of political meddling in a decision by the NPA and the then Scorpions to charge him. He argues that the NPA deviated from its constitutional obligation to act impartially and independently when it allegedly conspired with politicians in deciding when and how he would be charged. He also says the court failed to consider that a decision by the NPA 
not to charge him together with his financial advisor, Shapir Sheikh, was a violation of his right to a fair trial. While Tales says the court failed to consider its submission that witnesses were no longer available due to the 14-year delay in prosecution. The state is opposing the applications for leave to appeal. It argues against Zuma that the application for a permanent stay of prosecution should have been brought before a criminal court and not as a civil application before a full bench. The state also says Zuma's appeal is marred by disrespectful and intimperated language and allegations directed at the full bench. And the state said the court should, as a mark of displeasure, order Zuma to pay the cost of the application. I'm Vusma Kosini in Devon. Some opposition parties in South Africa's parliament say ANC MP Bongani Bongo should stand down as chairperson of the Home Affairs Committee pending the outcome of his corruption case. Bongo was arrested by the Hawks for allegedly trying to bribe a parliamentary official. The parties say while they accept the principle that he is currently only facing allegations, these are serious enough that he should not continue. Joseph Musia reports. It has been two years since the DA laid a charge against former State Security Minister Bongani Bongo. This was after advocate Ntutuzelo Vanara, then evidence leader of the parliamentary inquiry into corruption at ESCOM, informed Parliament that Bongo had tried to bribe him. He said Bongo offered him a blank check to scupper the hearings. Two weeks after he allegedly approached Vanara, Bongo was appointed State Security Minister. Earlier this year, despite allegations hanging over his head, Bong was chosen by the ANC as the chairperson of the Home Affairs Committee. His future now looks uncertain. Eric Ntabazalila is the spokesperson of the NPA in the Western Cape. Mr. Bongo is facing a, a charge of uh, corruption, which relates to uh, the inquiry that was formed uh, in Parliament, uh, particularly around ESCOM, uh, where it's alleged that he... He offered money to advocate Ntutuzelo Vanara. Uh, he appeared today and the bill was set at 5,000 rands. He will return to court on the 31st of January 2020. There are some conditions that uh, go with that where he's, he's, he needs to uh, inform the investigating officer when he's traveling. He must not make any contact with, with the state witnesses. Opposition parties say Bongo should do the honorable thing and step aside. DA Interim Leader John Stian Hazen. I don't think that you can be a chairperson of a portfolio committee whilst you are, have been uh, charged and prosecuted. And I think that in the interests of Parliament, that it will be correct for Mr Bongo to step down. And if you're not willing to do so, I think that the chief whip of his party should be giving some serious consideration to uh, moving him until he's cleared his name. This call was supported by Steve Swart of the ACDP and Rulama Nchaisa of the AIC. It would seem wise that he should stand down from that position given the allegations that are against him. We saw that in the past with the Basasa allegations against Mr. Vincent Smith. He then stood down from the committee that was dealing with the Section 25 of the land issue. So we would think there is a precedent to stand down pending the outcome of both these criminal actions and, of course, possible continuation of misconduct hearings in the Ethics Committee. We think uh, for him not to do something horrible, should just step down for a while, as Mr. Smith did last year. More especially when he knows that this is exactly the same what is being said, but as well, it is true. So he must not do it. That would be horrible because the South Africans now would take him and his party otherwise if he doesn't step down. ANC Chief Whip Pemima Jodina says the party is awaiting the full details regarding the arrest but is prepared to reconsider his deployment. If there is such a case, then maybe the ANC have to reconsider this deployment. Um, within the next um, uh, 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 three days, we'll know exactly what is going to happen. But at the moment, I cannot suspend him as a chair because the ANC have not as yet uh, received a detailed report as to say what has happened, for uh, which led to his arrest. Parliament spokesperson Moloto Motapo says the speaker is also still to be briefed on the circumstances that led to Bongo's arrest. There will be an interaction between the speaker uh, and the member on this matter. There will be an interaction uh, between the parliamentary structures that are responsible for briefing her on matters of this nature. So certainly she will be well informed in no time about this particular case so that the institution can continue to monitor it. 
That report by Joseph Musia in Cape Town. The announcement. South Africa's Minister in the Presidency, Jackson Mtembu, says the appointment of Andre de Reuter as new ESCOM CEO doesn't take away from government's policies on transformation. De Reuter's recent appointment at the power utility sparked a race debate on whether black candidates were overlooked. The minister was briefing the media in Pretoria on the outcomes of the recent cabinet meeting. Pumzilim Langini reports. The announcement of Andre de Reiter as the new man to take over the embattled power utility was met with mixed reaction. While some welcomed his appointment, others had reservations about his capabilities to turn ESCOM around. His skin color also sparked a debate on whether there weren't enough competent black people to lead ESCOM. Minister Mtembu says government is behind de Reiter's appointment as he possesses a wealth of knowledge required to turn around the struggling power utility. He says those against his appointment because of his skin color need to look back at the history of ESCOM. There are some who forgets or who decides to forget that there have been many black CEOs at ESCOM. They just decide to forget. Those who are screaming and saying that why not a black candidate? Indeed, black candidates have had an opportunity, so this is not reversal of the standing policy of government on transformation, none whatsoever. The ongoing strike at SAA also came under the spotlight at the briefing. The strike at the cash-strapped airline has entered its seventh day. Mtembu also says they hope the impasse will be resolved soon, but he has cautioned unions from making threats. We do, however, caution against irresponsible public utterances and threats to the safety of passengers or their families during this time of industrial action. A peaceful and less disruptive manner of resolving disputes is always desirable. Cabinet remains hopeful that an amicable solution will be found to the protracted South African airway strike. That report by Pumzilim Langeni in Pretoria. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African Time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African Perspective. Vote counting is underway following Ethiopia's Sadama region's referendum that many expect will approve the creation of a new federal state. The vote, completed on Wednesday, is seen as a critical test in a nation already struggling with community tensions. Some observers say it could inspire other ethnic groups to push for autonomy and redraw boundaries in Ethiopia, Africa's second most populous country with more than 100 million people. For more on what to expect after the vote, Kumbele Munjelele spoke to William Davison, senior researcher at the International Crisis Group. Broadly, I think it does look like um, eventually we're not sure of the schedule by any means, but it does look like Prime Minister um, Abiy Ahmed eventually wants to move the country some distance away from its current um, so-called ethnic federal model, um, in which states which have a very strong ethnic character um, also have a great deal of autonomy within the federation. So whilst the signs are from um, Prime Minister Abiy and his allies that they want to move in a in a different, ultimately sort of more classically liberal direction, I guess, the Sadama 
movement to create their own state, the tenth state in the federation, and to provide themselves with more autonomy is very much in line with the old old thinking and very much in line with the ethnic federal constitution. So there's a clear sure. tension there. Now, of course, uh, a major sticking point will be the status of uh, the capital Hawassa, which uh, the Sidama are eyeing as uh, the capital of uh, their state, but only about half of uh, the population there is Sidama, which should make this uh, a hotly contested issue if uh, the referendum passes. How should this issue be resolved, do you think? Well, what's happened is that the existing regional government, the, the state council, has decided that Hawassa City administration will be accountable to a new Sadama state government sure. um, if if Sadama state is created. But they've also agreed um, that the existing regional government can stay in Hawassa for up to 10 years whilst it finds a, a new location and I guess whilst withdrawal issues are resolved. So that deals with one of the problems. Um, and then I think you know everyone needs to sort of focus their best energies on ensuring that the creation or the implementation of a Sadama state is not at the disadvantage of existing non-Sadama residents and businesses. Of course, there's concerns. Some political activists and leaders see this as an opportunity to increase their wealth, status, power sure. at the expense of others. But it doesn't have to be like that. If this referendum passes as is expected, would this mean the demise of the Southern Ethiopian People's Democratic Movement, the regional ruling party, or will it survive after the Sidama get their state, do you think? It will survive initially, but because of the Sadama bid for their own state um, and because of similar bids for referendums to form their own states from 10 other um, ethnic administrations in the South, that whole sort of multi-ethnic unit, whether at the party level or the state level, the regional level, has been under pressure. But for now, this will just be a process of the Sadama leaving and the rest of the South um, staying together. And then we will have to see what the future holds. And then, of course, the other important element here is that currently Prime Minister Abiy is trying to create a single national party out of the coalition that the SEPDM is part of. So there's also that process that the, the party is undergoing. Now this vote comes uh, before next year's general election, which uh, Prime Minister Abiy has promised will be free and fair. Uh, but we know that previous elections going back to 2005 were marred by irregularities, violence and clampdowns by security forces. What kind of tone has uh, this situation Dama vote set in the run-up to next year's general election? I think we can look at that from two directions. I think it shows, it exposes, you know, this key fault line in Ethiopian politics between those who believe in a, an ethnic federal arrangement with autonomy for ethnic groups within a multi-ethnic federation and those who think that that is the problem um, in, with the Ethiopian state and with Ethiopia and it's driving people apart. So we can see that the opinions on the Sadama process um, exposes that fault line and that is a fault line that looks like it will very much be present during the general election next year. The flip side is that when it got round to actually holding the referendum yesterday, sure. um, it was a fairly peaceful affair and also the electoral board ended up administering it and, and preparing for it in quite a competent way. And so, of course, those are positive signs for a competitive and but peaceful election next year. The federal government intervened a few months ago and declared that the military takes control of the Sidama region until the situation calms down. Is the military still in charge of the region? Yes, and actually it's uh, much broader than the Sadama zone. It's the whole of the southern region, um, which there has essentially been a federal takeover of security management. Um, that was put in place following the violence in July in Sadama. It's still in place, um, and I think that's had quite an important effect in terms of quietening down political activity and focusing both the Sadama uh, leaders and, 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 and protesters and activists and the officials, it's, it's focused their minds on just proceeding and holding the referendum. It looks like the, the security arrangements are going to stay in place for some time. And so that will have effect, have the effect of suppressing um, political activity associated to the other autonomy demands. And then we have to see um, what kind of political momentum there is there when the security situation is eventually relaxed. That's William Davison, senior researcher with the International Crisis Group, on the line from Addis Ababa, speaking to Kumbela Munjelele.
Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussan. The headlines, former South African President Jacob Zuma and co-accused French arms company Talisa returning to the High Court. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed not to resign despite being charged with bribery, breach of trust and fraud. And the World Health Organization has warned that four-fifths of children and teenagers are not getting enough physical exercise. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Democratic Republic of Congo's parliament has approved the country's budget for the 2020 financial year. The 10 billion US dollar budget, mainly focused on the improvement of social conditions of the DRC people, has been received and transferred to the National Assembly's Commission in charge of economy, finances, and budget control. Januel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The Democratic Republic of Congo's budget is finally known. The 10 billion budget proposal was approved by MPs on Wednesday. The budget approval has come after Prime Minister Sylvester Ilunga. Ilungamba responded to the MPs' questions. More light was brought on how to address the flood and the way in different provinces of the country and on the free of charge basic education. Speaking about the flood situation, Sylvester Ilunga Ilungamba had this to say. To address the situation, the government plans to start visits in the affected areas since this Thursday with humanitarian partners for deep evaluation to quickly assist the victims. The other plan is to fight against endemic and waterborne diseases. Members of parliament were then satisfied by Prime Minister's explanations and the National Assembly accepted to receive the budget. It has been transferred to the Commission in Charge of Economy, Finance and Budget Control. Some of the MPs who spoke to Channel Africa expressed satisfaction and one of them is Neymar Grass from the Bazuele province. I think the Prime Minister has tried his best uh, to meet all the requests uh, and demands of the deputies from last time. He has tried to go into details and I think personally we are appeased and we will look forward to seeing the fulfillment of what he has promised. Yeah, he's mentioned Bazuele, that's where I'm from. He mentioned about... Um, taking care of the you know sectorial army and as you know uh, i'm mostly concerned because of this story of mororo and elera they're basically based in my territory so i was glad to hear that there it's among his priorities and i will really as a speaker for my people make sure that i do follow up personally and that we benefit from this program meanwhile mps approved the 2020 budget while people are busy demonstrating waiting in Beni in the eastern province of the North Kivu against the continuing killings in that part of the country. This happened after 19 more people were killed this week. The assailant who the officials said belonged to the Allied Democratic Forces ADF, a Ugandan Islamist group, also kidnapped several people and touched the Catholic Church during two separate attacks about 35 kilometers apart. 
The Congolese army began an offensive three weeks ago near the Ugandan border. The ADF has been operating there for more than two decades and is one of dozens of rebel groups active in the mineral-rich areas where civil wars resulted in millions of deaths around the turn of the century. The National Army spokesperson Mark Azukai said that the ADF killed at least seven people on the outskirts of the city of Beni, adding that two soldiers were wounded and several people were missing. Donald Kibwana, the administrator of Beni territory, said ADF fighters killed another 12 people in the village of Mavete, where they also burned a church and a pharmacy and kidnapped several others. Angry protesters demanded the UN mission here in the Democratic Republic of Congo Monusco to fully join the military operation underway in Beni, otherwise to just leave the country. Jedot Mangwengwe Kasereka is an MP currently in Beni. Monusco has to quickly join the FARDC with all its logistics and troops, otherwise to leave the Beni region, since its attitude has been suspected from the the starting of this military operation by our army. By army. And indeed, the UN forces are not fully part of the military operation underway in Beni, since it's not a joint operation, FARDC Monusco. Monusco is backing the National Army once this is requested. That's indeed what the mission spokesperson Florence Marshall told Channel Africa. I should clarify that it's not a joint operation together with Monusco. It's an operation by the FRDC. Uh, however, uh, as you know, Monusco is the, uh, is the partner of the, F the FRDC. Uh, it's in our mandate and we have an agreement with the FRDC. We work together in a frame of uh, coordination and this uh, coordination, uh, I have two examples in, in, in mind. Uh, one is that we provide support in terms of intelligence. Uh, to the FRDC, this is the first thing, and the second thing is that uh, we provide logistical uh, support, uh, medical evacuation, casualties evacuation. But indeed, the UN mission in this country is doing all its best to make sure it protects civilians, according to Monisco spokesperson Florence Marshall. Civilians keep on being killed, and, and it's something that uh, we deeply regret and, and deplore, and we understand uh, that the uh, population sometimes are not pleased with Monisco because they think that we, we could do more. But we need to have in mind that uh, in total, in, in the DRC, we have 13,000 troops deployed in the country. So, and everything we can do, we do in order to protect people. The number of civilians killed by the Allied Democratic Forces is growing higher every day since the armed forces of the Democratic Republic of Congo launched the military operation in October. It has been more than five years since the killing situation started in Beni. It's indeed the very same inhabitants of Beni who have been more affected by the deadly Ebola epidemic. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. It's widely understood that exercise is good for you, but how much should that be? In the first global study of its kind into school children aged 11 to 17 years old, the World Health Organization found that four in five of them are not active for even 60 minutes of exercise a day. That's the minimum recommended amount. In an interview with UN News' Daniel Johnson, the agency's Dr. Leanne Riley explains why it is urgent that governments do something about it and how frozen Finland is already leading the way. Our key finding is that we were examining the patterns of physical activity in adolescents from 2001 to 2016, and we've found that there's been no improvement in patterns of activity in this age group. Four out of five adolescents, that's young people aged between 11 and 17 in our study, are not meeting the recommendation for being physically active. And the recommendation is what? How much per day? It's one hour a day. One hour out of their lives each day to be physically active 
to improve their health and to get a health benefit from being physically active. And four out of five of our adolescents are not meeting that. So is this one hour in total or can it be broken up into 20 minute segments? What kind of activity has to happen? Yes, it's an hour in total, but can be made up of different small chunks of their time. Anything that just adds up to being 60 minutes. And it doesn't have to be very vigorous sport or, or so forth. It can be just movement, walking, cycling, jogging, but playing sport, um, any of those activities, just trying to be active for 60 minutes a day to improve their health. Now, it's interesting that um, two of the countries you found with the most improvements in kids who are doing a bit more is in the United States and in Ireland, but it's only for boys and it's not for girls. Maybe you could dig into those figures a bit. Sure. From our study, we've shown that while activity patterns in general have not moved much in these 15 years that we've examined, there's been a slight decrease in sufficient activity in boys. Very slight. Girls, it's stable. And so that's, of, of course, a concern. One concern is that we're not making any improvement, but the second is that the small improvements we're seeing seem to only be impacting on boys. And the two examples you've explained in the US and Ireland, they are countries where we have seen a more significant improvement in boys' levels of activity, but not girls. Because? Well, we think it's, um, we can only um, speculate in this area, but we do think that, for example, in the US, they've implemented a new policy and a series of policies to try and promote physical activity in this age group but they quite often tend to be promotion of sports activities that maybe only appeal to boys or appeal more to boys than to girls so we think that's helping to drive a little bit of this gender difference let's take it out regionally then in latin america you're finding disastrous levels of activity among children up to what 90 percent of kids 11 to 16 year olds are not getting even that one hour a day which seems mind-boggling um and in some European countries too, we find a problem. How much can we attribute it to the dreaded internet and smartphones? We certainly see that this electronic revolution is really impacting on our young people. So again, it's a bit of speculation because we don't understand completely why young people might not be physically active, but we think there are some trends at play. So this increased um, exposure to screen time, digital play, seems to be replacing more active pursuits in young people. So that's one big factor and it's global. We don't see any differences around the world in that context. There are a couple of other things we think are at play as well, though, that uh, there are some security issues uh, that discourage young people from being outside and being active. The traffic problems worsened, there's less footpaths, so young people aren't walking and cycling to school as much. They may be taking the bus or in cars, um, so that seems to be a factor. In some countries, it's also culturally, uh, you know, Young people aren't being encouraged to play, but are... Girls in particular or boys too? Yes, well, I think possibly girls in particular, that there's, in some cultures, it's um, it's okay for boys to be outside and being active, but maybe not, girls aren't as encouraged to do that. And then the other thing to think about for this particular age group is that there's quite an emphasis in some countries on academic pursuits instead of being active. So young people are really pushed to study, to do well academically, to sit all day in school, and then to sit also doing homework and study. It doesn't encourage them to be as active as they need to be for their health. So recommendations. Um, you did mention earlier Finland has come up with a really good initiative in schools, um, which involves teachers really uh, getting involved, encouraging kids to move more. Uh, how might that work? Is it something that really could work or is it not just going to be a, a, a disruptive thing for teachers to have to deal with? No, I think Finland's a really interesting example of a country that's really tried to embrace and encourage people to be, um, especially kids, to be more active. Focus more on younger kids at the moment, but we're hoping that that would extend to this older age group as well, where instead of just sitting in a lesson, young people can be encouraged to move around a bit more as part of the activity, to take small activity breaks. That's been uh, very encouraging. So I think the education sector has a lot to do in terms of promoting physical activity and education at school. But a they're not going to solve the problem either. There has to be some leadership and investment and action in other sectors. So, for example, urban design and planning. Um, if we don't have public spaces in which people feel safe and can promote um, activity, they won't be out there. So th that's certainly needed. The, the transport sector needs to make improvements there so that there's, um, the cities or, or urban areas become more um, walkable and more cyclable. So it's a, a kind of whole of society action that's needed. 
I also think it's time to really consult young people themselves and challenge them about why they're not active and what they think could be done to make them more active and what they're, what sorts of activities or sports they would like to see promoted and what opportunities they'd like made available to them. I think they'll have some good ideas in that area and I think we we really need to do more because this is a wake-up call. We because we're not going to hit targets. We are not going to hit. Uh, we had a, a target to, um, to improve um, physical activity by 15% um, by 2030 and we are well off track on and, that. And apart from obesity and the problems that are linked to that, uh, heart disease, etc., what are the other benefits of just one hour of exercise a week? Um, it will improve their cardiovascular health, their respiratory systems, their uh, metabolic systems, their muscles to help them stay healthy and fit. Um, they're more likely to have, have a healthy weight if they're physically active. Um, it improves their cognitive behaviour, um, their pro-social behaviour, and they're also more likely if they're active adolescents to be more active adults and to carry that health benefit into their adult life. That's Dr. Leanne Riley of the World Health Organization speaking to UN News' Daniel Johnson. At 7.45, and our economics updates up next with Tabi Solohoko. Good morning. A trade union, Solidarity, is adamant that placing South African airways under business rescue is the only way to limit damage to it. The trade union has served a court papers on SAA and Ministers of Finance and Public Enterprises asking that the airline be placed under business rescue. It says this is essential for SAA for the sake of taxpayers. If Solidarity's application is successful, It will be the first time that a state enterprise will be placed under business rescue. This means that the court can appoint a business rescue practitioner with comprehensive powers to rescue the airline. Solidarity COO Dirk Herman says that the airline could be heading for liquidation. And we can't see any way out at this stage. We look at different processes that the government up to now, and none of that is actually succeeding. So the fact of the matter is we need a third-party intervention. It will be too expensive for the workers and the taxpayers if the SAA collapse. So what we now need is someone that can help the SAA to turn around. And therefore, we need a business rescue practitioner to do that. This specific application will be a very historic application because it's the first time that a public company will be put under business rescue. South African Reserve Bank uh, Governor Lesetja Khanyakho says that the bank considers rating agencies' reviews because of the risk they have on the premium at which the country can borrow money on local and foreign markets. His comments come after the bank's Monetary Policy Committee's decision to leave the repo rate unchanged at 6.5% and interest rates also unchanged at 10%. Khanyakho's comments also come ahead of a rating agency Standard & Poor's expected rating review on the country and follows Moody's downward revision on the country's growth outlook from stable to negative. If the rating agencies have a concern, those will then begin to factor into the country risk premium. And the manner in which we end up having to decide what the neutral rate is for South Africa is that we take what the foreign neutral is and we adjust it for South Africa's specific country risk. And clearly, if the South African country risk rises, then what you have is that neutral rate is then deemed to be higher. Zambia's Centre for Trade Policy and Development has recently concluded a follow-up study on government's decision to relaunch Zambia Airways through an assessment of the proposed business model for Zambia Airways and an analysis 
of the financing options for the airline, which has been established that the relaunch of Zambia Airways will add to the unsustainability of Zambia public debt. A CTPD researcher, Bright Chizonde, is calling on government to halt this decision since the current macroeconomic and fiscal position is not allowing for the relaunch of Zambia Airways. Namibia's Construction Industry Federation will be matching contractors with projects according to their sizes to ensure that tenderpreneurs or agents who do not add any value are cut out. This was revealed by Barbel Kirchner, the consulting general manager of the Construction Industries Federation, when she explained the outcome of a construction conference which was held in the capital Ventuk last week. She said the overall aim is to align the current macroeconomic and fiscal environment and its impact on the construction sector. Tesla has unveiled its first ever pickup truck a long-awaited expansion to its product lineup that possesses a direct challenge to other automakers. Tesla chief executive, South African-born Elon Musk, unveiled the truck called the Cybertruck at a launch event in Los Angeles. It looks like a futuristic armored vehicle, which he claims won't scratch. The truck marks the first foray by Tesla into pickup trucks, whose Model 3 sedan is the world's top-selling battery electric car. And I see our sport presenter, Figi Lelongwati, is interested. Seems like he wants to buy a car that won't scratch. You're listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. And we start off with football news. Uh, good news for South African national under-23 team currently taking part in the African Cup of Nations African tournament in Egypt is that all the players are available for today's third play playoff against Ghana. South Africa's under-23 head coach David Nodwana says today's game is all about qualification. We've got a big game uh, against uh, Ghana. Uh, of course, uh, the most important thing is to buy our ticket to go to Tokyo. We are queuing at the moment, ready for check-in and see if we are going through into the plane or not. It's been a tough journey, it's been a tough trip, uh, especially the last game, uh, very dramatic, uh, very emotionally draining. Uh, we've been able to pick up ourselves, refocus the players, re-energize ourselves, and make sure that uh, tomorrow we come with the right spirit, with the right desire to do what is necessary uh, to go through to Tokyo, and that's the most important thing for tomorrow. Uh, tactics. No tactics. I think what matters is to go to Tokyo, and I'm sure it's the same for, for Ghana. So we look forward to the game. And of course, uh, not much time to prepare, but mentally, we already started the preparation. Because it's now more about the mind, the heart, the hunger, the desire to want to get to Tokyo. The first goal against Egypt was a controversial penalty. It's a controversial penalty which was awarded by the referee despite Tendo Makumela having been clearly outside the box. Nutane is hoping that his boys have learned from their mistakes. When we lose, we lose as a team. When we win, we win as a team. Football is about mistakes, I always tell the boys. And many a times as coaches, the things that uh, we teach the players, we put in practice, 90% of them don't necessarily come out. 10% of what you see usually in matches uh, would be perfectly what you sometimes put in the practice. So we cannot really point fingers uh, at anyone. And uh, we sat down as a group. Naturally, uh, Darren Johnson, the goalkeeper, would be disappointed with the last goal. The way he came in, we spoke about it. He's okay, and I'm happy that. 
Athletics Comrades Marathon Association CMA has announced the suspension of three athletes who were investigated for having cheated in the 2019 marathon. These athletes were found to have either supplied false entry information and or having utilized another athlete to run their qualifying race. The CMA will not be releasing the names of the suspended athletes. However, these transgressors will have their 2019 race result declared null and void, in addition to being excluded from participating in the Comrades Marathon for the next two to five years, depending on the transgression. The CMA has also notified the respective running clubs and provincial athletics federations of the offending athletes. CMA race director Ruin James says the CMA will not tolerate cheating in any form. It is incumbent upon every athlete to honor the ethical code and ethos of the sport. And finally, rugby news. A women's rugby team who traveled overseas to a tournament have been placed in quarantine following a measles outbreak. Tonga women were hoping to compete at the Oceania Championship in Fiji, a route to qualify for 2021 World Cup, but are now out of the tournament. They were scheduled to play Australia A on Monday and Samoa on Friday. A Fiji health ministry official said Tonga's participation could have spread the disease internationally. Tonga's health ministry last week reported 251 confirmed or suspected cases in the country, but there have been no new, new cases reported across the region affecting Samoa, Tonga, Australia, New Zealand, and now Fiji. Schools have been closed and public gatherings affected. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Controversial Nigerian social media bill passes second reading in the Senate. And South Africa's former president, Jacob Zuma, returns to court today. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzurama Gaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Something Soweto featuring DJ Maporisa, Gabza the Small and Shasha with a song titled Agulalegi.